Okay, verse 18 through 29, chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, Father, we are so grateful, thankful that you are both a God of wrath and a God of mercy and grace. You are a God of justice, but you've also shown us so much love. God, I I pray that you would help us to not presume upon your grace. Lord, as it appears the church in Thyatira was doing, God, that that we would understand and know that your kindness is meant to bring us to repentance. And so, God, as Lance brings us this message this morning, God, I pray that you would um, soften our hearts. Let us see the areas in our lives where we are presuming on your grace, where we are um, unrepentant of sin, and where we are turning a blind eye and tolerating things that uh, should not be tolerated. God, um, convict us. Help us to uh, repent in the areas that we need to repent. And God, I just pray that you would be with Lance, give him your words, that this would be your message uh, to your people this morning. And God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe the things that we hear this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Renstrom's. Well, we have a saying around here, for Jesus and for good, if you remember that as a part of kind of our DNA. And as we've looked through these churches, we've tried to understand, like, are these churches for Jesus and for good? Uh, You saw in Ephesus, they were for good, but not necessarily for Jesus, right? They had lost their first love for the church at Smyrna. They were for Jesus and for good, and they did it for good, like forever. There was no... Uh, real correction to that church at Smyrna. Last week we had kind of part one of a, a church in Pergamum that was for Jesus sometimes and for good sometimes, and also they like to feather in a little world uh, with their slogan. And today is kind of part two of that, 
with one major difference. Last week was this compromised church, the compromised church of the church at Pergamum. This week, uh, with the church at Thyatira, is not just a compromised church, but a tolerant church. And as you kind of start to think about the difference between compromise and tolerance, we might start to kind of really struggle with the differences there. And therefore, you could just go, well, this is just the same message with different words um, to the church at Thyatira. In some ways, you're right. But in other ways, Jesus gets very specific about the language that he's using for the church at Thyatira. So you've got compromise and you've got tolerance. And as you look at the two differences, if you were to maybe... Uh, you know, prepare sermons for a living and dig into these things, um, you would see that compromise is accepting a standard that you know is too low. You have a standard, but you compromise it. And so you, you accept a standard that is far too low than maybe what God wants you to have. And tolerance is literally the word here is to pardon, to allow something that you know is wrong and, uh, and, and makes you guilty by association. It is tolerating, it is pardoning something without interference. No longer are you running interference against this thing or person or doctrine or teaching. You've just allowed it in, you've pardoned it, and it is now innocent in your eyes. If you think about it, um, this is a great invitation for us to learn how to engage culture uh, in a godly, biblical, and discerning way. Our culture celebrates tolerance, doesn't it? Our day and age, you must be tolerant. Matter of fact, if you're not tolerant, in the very way that I want you to be tolerant, in the timing that I want you to be tolerant, over my little hot-button issue of, of tolerance, if you don't do it the way that I want you to do it, in the timing that I want you to do it, according to my preferences and according to everything else, then away with you. There's celebration of tolerance is very paradoxical there's a celebration of tolerance and yet it's very intolerant i hope you see this in our culture in today's age that tolerance is kind of the banner with which we're all supposed to just march to that drum but if we don't do it in a specific way in a specific time then all of a sudden we're pushed out as an intolerant or a phobe a phobia or um or a bigot um, on some level or another and so we've got to understand, as Christians, how do we thrive or engage a culture that is uh, both tolerant and intolerant at the same time? I think that's the church at Thyatira, to be sure. So how do we engage and stay faithful in this culture as a church? As a follower of Jesus, how do you engage in a thoughtful and meaningful way so as not to compromise your integrity um, as a believer? Well, I think this is going to be a good word for us today. So there's three main ways that um, Christians have traditionally engaged with culture. If you want to get, go into a deep dive on this, there's a book called Christ and Culture, and it's uh, decades old now, but it's your opportunity uh, to really kind of do a deep dive logically and intellectually on how it is that we can engage with culture. But I'll just break it down. There's like five or six categories that he has. I'm going to go with three, but here's how we would do it. We would, you would reject and avoid all culture because all culture outside of the church is evil and bad and therefore to be avoided. That's the rejection uh, part of culture. Or you would engage culture in a relevant way. 
you kind of befriend the, the culture around you. Um, you kind of try to be cool, right? This is, um, this is the mega church craze of the 90s. Um, where we're going to take away the cross from the stage, we're going to strip away any meaningful uh, imagery from the church, make it probably more like a mall experience where you can go into uh, a restaurant experience, pick a menu of the things that you like, and move along in the movement of Christian activities. Um, there's multiple levels to the relevant church. You've heard this of liberal denominations, open minds, open doors, open hearts. So it sounds inviting, sounds like, man, we just want you here, it sounds really good, but if we're not careful, we tip the scale over to relevancy, and we tolerate maybe some things that we don't, shouldn't tolerate. Or you enter into the culture, and you redeem it. See, the redemptive person sees culture as marred by sin, and enters into the culture with a posture of celebrating the good that's there, and also trying to redeem the evil that is there. This hits you, whether you know it or not, every year at the Grove. And it usually hits the new people a little bit harder, and they are a little bit disoriented when we do Halloween block parties. Well, why would we engage such an evil tradition and an evil holiday? Well, we do so with a redemptive lens. We understand that it can be evil. And for those that have never, maybe you were raised in a, in a particular tradition where it was like, it's evil, we're turning off the lights, we're not handing out candy, that's a rejecting view, right, of Halloween, or you get um, uh, not just the, the rejecting uh, view or the redeeming view, but the relevant view. And you're just kind of entering into Halloween with not a lot of discernment. You're just there to have fun, throw the candy out, enjoy the kids. You don't really think about ways that you might be entering into that space as a believer in particular, which would be the redemptive view. Now, I will say this is on repeat every single moment outside of any wall or group or away from the people of God this decision is on repeat that you're already making, and I think the scriptures are going to help us understand, like, how do we make these decisions on what to watch on Netflix, on what to listen to? Like, is Coldplay evil because they're not believers? What about that personality profile that you love, like the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs? Well, how do we enter into the spaces that aren't overtly sacred but there is a secular nature to it. How do we engage the culture around us, whether it be social practices, movies, shows, you name it? We've got to have some discernment here on how we meaningfully engage these spaces as followers of Jesus. Now, I'll say, not all things are equally redeemable, and not all things should be rejected, right? Um, and not all things need to be entered into as if they're neutral. There are some things such as, as we've seen last week and now this week, eating meat sacrificed to idols was not neutral in the New Testament. It's evil. And so we might, you know, kind of get lost in that world long ago, but I think today's text will invite us to go, okay, this is something that we probably actually deal with. And so we need to understand, and a Christian's posture towards culture takes discernment, practice, hear me now, it's going to take practice. You're going to fail at this. It's going to, you're going to mess this up. You're going to go too far one way or the other. You're going to get super pharisaical and be like, no way, I would never. And then a year later, you're going to be that crazy select softball parent that chases their kid around. That's evil. I would never. Oh, dang it, I am. <laughs> so you've got to find a way to engage culture in a meaningful way, right? The church at Thyatira has done it all. They have rejected evil. 
God will commend them today. They have redeemed that which is sinful. They've entered into these places in a really discerning and meaningful way, but they also have become overly tolerant. And that's where we'll go here in a few minutes, and that they've done it through a lack of discernment. You're going to hear that word a lot today. So let's look, uh, take a look at the words that Jesus has to the church at Thyatira. I want to just read uh, it through once again, but just piece by piece here. Now, uh, chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now you remember, there's this very predictable structure that Jesus is using. He reveals himself, right? He, he, he corrects the people, or commends the people. He corrects the people, and then he gives them a command at the end. So he reveals something very specific of himself, and he does so here. We'll unpack this in Thyatira. Verse 19, I know your works. Oh, look at this. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. What a beautiful commendation to the church in Thyatira. Let's understand this culture in Thyatira, if we can, this city. It was known for three things. It was known uh, for honoring and worshiping Apollo. Apollo was the son of Zeus, and it was there that Apollo was the guardian of the city of Thyatira. Uh, he was the divine guardian of that city, and so it, he was honored at all the guild functions. We're going to talk about the guilds in just a moment. In fact, there was an emperor worship there in Thyatira, Emperors, I want you to hear this, were seen as the incarnation of the Son of God. Are you hearing the language? The incarnation, that, that the emperor was Apollo in the flesh, the Son of God in the flesh. So it's no wonder then in verse 18 when Jesus says, I am the Son of God, that the people in Thyatira would go, hold up. This is not a welcome here. Apollo, the divine guardian of our city that makes it thrive, he is the son of God. And the emperor that so looks after us, he is one of the sons of God. God is waging war against the culture, the religious and political culture of the day. Jesus is stepping into that space in a meaningful, discerning, and dare I say confrontational way as he reveals himself in verses 18 and 19. Um, you'll also notice that uh, in Thyatira was also known not just for their, their honoring and worship of Apollo and the emperors as the sons of the high God, but they, uh, Thyatira was known for its massive amount of trade. It was a manufacturing and marketing hub of Asia that literally, the historians will say, brought half of the world's trade to the city of Thyatira. If you wanted something handcrafted, if you wanted something farm to table, if you wanted to say, maybe find a mercy goods in the uh, region of Asia, if you wanted something high quality and, dare I say, hipster, you put a bird on it like Portland, and you would find it in Thyatira. It's Thyatira. That's where you would go for that type of a thing. So their trade was amazing. As a matter of fact, what you'd find is that Lydia, one of those first church planters of that church in Philippi, which we've been studying alongside this, Lydia was from Thyatira. And what was she known for? She was a dealer of purple goods. She was a dealer. We know this in the book of Acts, and it's significant because Thyatira was known not just for Apollo, not just for the marketing and for the high trade, but also for the guilds that were there. 
Um, if you think about a guild, think about like an old school union or a new school network. Um, the guilds were, were all over Thyatira. They were, it was famous, this city was famous for the guilds of wool, garments, dyers, again, with Lydia, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, bronze smiths, and shoemakers. And you would go, well, what's the deal with the shoemakers? Well, you go back up again to verse 18, and what is Jesus? Is he revealed us, whose feet are like burnished bronze. There's something there that he's revealing to them that we'll unpack at the end. That's just This is both beauty and strength right here with the understanding of Jesus. See, if you wanted to make it in Thyatira financially, you had to be connected to a guild. There was no such thing as an independent contractor. You were connected to the local union, the local network. Those were the people that looked out for you. And if, you needed, uh, some, if, you, if somebody needed what you had, you were connected to that guild, and your financial prosperity and security was connected to that network in many ways, just like we have networking groups today. But if you were a Christian, there was no opting out. Or at least, was there? If you were there in Thyatira, you were a part of a guild. You were a part of that union. There was no opting out. And so for a recent convert in Thyatira, man, that presented problems. Why? Because the guilds would celebrate with feasts. And the way that they would celebrate those feasts is that they would start off these feasts by pouring out a libation of wine and end the feast with the same way, pouring out wine in honor of the great guardian of the city, Apollo. And they would go on and dedicate their meal to Zeus and Apollo. And as we unpacked last week, these feasts would often turn into drunken, well, I can't say the word because there's still some kids in here, but let's just say uh, lots of people doing private things in public. Okay? All together. Right? It is a, it is a, it is a place where you are going to to be, um, you're going to be uh, tempted with toleration. You're going to be tempted with compromise. And so as you, if you were, uh, uh, let's say you're a leather worker in Thyatira who is a recent convert to Jesus, and your guild now is having a party on Friday night to celebrate a good third quarter or a good first quarter of the year, and they're expecting you to show up and to bring the meat or to bring the side or to bring the libation or whatever it is, can you go as a Christian? That's kind of going on in the background. Can you participate in a ceremony that not only is in the honor of false gods, but exploits the human body? Do you reject it? Evil. I'm out. Can't go anymore. Now, I want you to understand um, that if you don't go, um, you can keep your, your finance, you're going you're gonna to basically uh, risk your financial security. If you go, you keep your financial security. You fly below the radar, you might be denying God himself. If you don't go, you stand in condemnation of your network, your guild. Rest assured, if you have stood for the Lord, you've probably experienced this, that people all of a sudden are very hostile against you because of your conviction to just say, no, I don't want to participate in that. Because what happens is when you say, no, I'm not going to participate in that, they all see it as a condemnation of their behavior. If you're, uh, if you're ever at a point where you're standing for something culturally acceptable and you just go, I'm sorry, I can't participate in that, prepare for a blowback because you're condemning them 
for lack of discernment. And that all of a sudden, they're now aware in ways that they were never aware before, what I am doing may not be okay with the Lord. But they haven't really had any conviction behind it, and so they just press on into it anyways. There will be condemnation if you don't go. You will risk your financial future, and you will stand in condemnation of your colleagues, and that will not go well over time. Or perhaps you enter into that space in redemption, and you go into that space and you do your best to avoid the sights and the sounds of debauchery and sexual immorality, and you even may go saying into your heart, well, these idols don't mean anything to me anymore. You may even go into the guise of saying, well, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring Jesus to them. I'm gonna, it's a missional meal. I'm going to bring Jesus to the, to the guild party. They, they're, they're sacrificing to Apollo, and I'll just leave before it gets too crazy, but you know, maybe I'll just participate a little bit. Let me just pause for a moment. If we're entering into spaces, which by the way, not every space is, is, is worthy of redemption. Like if you're a man, um, I'm going to bet that you can't go into a not-so-gentleman's club and be like, oh, I'm on mission here. Like your wife's not buying that. And neither is uh, this space of a, of, of a feast in honor of Apollo. Like, no one can buy that, but let me just say, like, there's other things that maybe are uh, a little less obvious that we'll enter into these spaces and go, well, I'm going to bring Jesus to them. And we, we say these things over time, and, you know, with good intentions, but do we actually bring Jesus to them? Like, are you actually saying, hey, Jesus, I see here that you've, oh, over time, that you've given yourself over to libations over and over and over again. You know, specs is known as specs fine spirits. You know why they call it spirit? Thank you for asking, Alex. Because you are under control of a spirit. Or you could, this is, I mean, the New Testament puts this before you. Do not get drunk on wine, rather be filled with the Spirit of God. Why would you not be drunk on wine? Because it's a, it's a contrasting, warring spirit. Oh, now we're going into specs with some discernment. That's the point. But at some point, if you enter into these neutral spaces, bring Jesus to the people that you said you were going to bring Jesus to them. Don't just hope that they're going to notice that you're different. They're not. Bring the gospel, the good news, that whatever they're giving themselves to, though may provide them some temporary relief, will not provide them eternal rest. As a matter of fact, it puts them in jeopardy of seeing it. Let us be a people that enter into these spaces with redemptive nature or redemptive purposes in our hearts. So friends, social anxiety is nothing new. We think that sometimes we're the first people to experience the awkwardness that comes in or entering into the culture in a non-discerning or, 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 or at least just really gray area. Social anxiety is nothing new. We're not the first people to have to go to a rodeo cook-off and go, okay, how do I bring Jesus to this place? We're not the first people uh, to, to be pressured by our boss to go and entertain those potential clients in a certain way. We're not the first, we're not the last, but we're here and we're now, and these are the things that are before us, and how are we going to enter into these spaces? 
See, we cannot think that culture is all that different in Thyatira or Pergamum, where food is sacrificed to idols uh, and sexual morality are rampant. This week, on Friday, started what for most of our schools? Spring break, baby! Where'd you go in college for spring break? I can tell you I didn't go to church. I went to the church of Panama City. And we worshipped. We worshipped all kinds of things. This is not so far away of sexual morality and idolatry. And it's not, and you're sitting there to yourself right now, like, I'm not going to Panama City for spring break. I know you're not. And if you are, go with the gospel. Like, bring, that's where all the beach reach happens, right? But I would say this, right? There comes a point where, yes, we're not going out and doing the things that our culture does in that way. But let me just bring this down to where we live. Someone asked me this week. So how is it that we are um, prone or tempted um, to sit at a table and offer and, and eat meat sacrificed to idols? How do we do that today? Great question. I did not make that clear apparently last week. So let me make it clear this week. At the end of a long week, at the end of a long day, only you can tell you and the Lord whether or not when you reach for that glass or even more socially acceptable than I thought, when you reach for that gummy, when you reach for that vape or that cigarette or that dip, when you go participate in really good things like work or sports with your kids or you go binge watch whatever really wholesome thing on Netflix or wherever, when you enter into that space, you've got to start discerning, am I offering this activity to the false god of comfort or control or relief or power, or am I entering into this space in honor and to glorify my God? Only you can answer that question in those moments. It's not necessarily about the activities that we're participating in. It's the motives, the deep-seated, this is why Lent is such a special season on the church calendar. It is your opportunity to go deep in your spirit, with the spirit, to discern, oh my God, where have I strayed? Search me and know me and point out in me any which way in which I've sinned against you, O Lord, that I might repent and return to you with my whole heart. Now, I'll, I'll never know. We could participate in the same exact thing, and one would be honoring the Lord and one would be honoring ourselves. I'll never know, but you, this is the invitation to discern, to, to pray to the Lord, to the Spirit who's in you, to help you understand. Like, look, Jesus is not against drinking, which I know is news for many of us. He drank, I, I know this is crazy, it wasn't, it wasn't juice at the party. They didn't all of a sudden get real excited that grape juice was there in Cana. It was better wine, right? So he's not against drinking. Instead, he is against entering into things without discernment on why we are doing what we are doing. Are we participating with that wine, beer, food, cookies, sports, sex, for the glory of God or for ourselves? See, the, the church in Thyatira was battling. They were battling the culture around them 
of Apollo, of the guilds, right, of this marketplace of all these people, and Jesus commends them. If you notice the language in verse 19, all the ands, not me either at first. Alex is the only one talking to me today, and I feel like this is a small enough group that I feel like we should be going back and forth a little bit. Thank you, Alex, for making this spicy and relevant. If you look at verse 19, I know your works. Look at what God knows. He knows. He knows your love and your faith and your service. That service right there is not just any service. It is deacon-like, committed, faithful servants. He knows your patient endurance, not just endurance, but patient endurance. And if I know anything, I'm better at endurance than patient endurance with my kids and with my family and with myself. Oh, it takes so long. I get impatient in my endurance. And that your latter works exceeded are exceeding the first. Y'all, they're more faithful and fruitful in retirement than they ever were in their early years with Jesus. Whereas Ephesus lost their first love over time, Thyatira's love for Jesus was bursting, even more so in their latter years than in the beginning. Jesus, though, had some things against the church at Thyatira. And I think it has to do with this laissez-faire attitude towards sin. You see, Jesus' correction is this. It is worldliness through tolerance. Let's read verses 20 through 23. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw, her, throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works idea of being laissez-faire towards sin literally means allow to do and that's exactly how they strayed the church at Thyatira allowed Jezebel to thrive in their church within their walls and what was what did that look like well it was self-proclamation as a prophet who had a platform to teach others to multiply her deception or seduction into the church members of just saying it's not that big a deal we can pardon this and just feather it in to the worship of your Jesus. We can just feather in uh, idol worship to Apollo, not a big deal. We can just feather in eating meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, it doesn't mean anything, anything to you in any ways, right? Fine. Just come on in. But there is something spe uh, special and specific about this uh, condemnation here in the church of Thyatira. He uses the word Jezebel. And if you've not read the Old Testament in a while, let me bring you up to speed on the character of Jezebel. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab of Israel. Ahab was evil in the sight of the Lord because he married uh, this Sidonian woman. She brought in then the sacrifice to the Baals, the false gods of the day. And the Bible says, led the sons of Israel astray into idolatry and into immorality. But that is not something specific. That actually happened a lot in the Old Testament. What Jezebel did was something very specific in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, but let me just give you a summary. She killed the prophets of the Lord. 
She supported the 450 prophets and, uh, of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah uh, whenever they came against Elijah at Mount Carmel. She was the one underwriting all of those 850 prophets. So that cool scene where fire comes down from heaven and consumes the altar of God in the midst of all that water, all that was orchestrated by Jezebel. And Elijah and the Lord obviously win. She then attempted to kill Elijah. Do you remember this? He then was on the run thinking that he was the only faithful prophet. He was disoriented. He was depressed. All this because of Jezebel. Just a little toleration, a little pardoning. It grows over time. After not selling a vineyard to Ahab, there's this character named Naboth in Jezreel. Ahab goes. He wants to, he wants to buy uh, Naboth's vineyard. Uh, Naboth says, no, no, thank you. This is my family's vineyard. I don't want to give it to you. I don't want to sell it to you. And what does Jezebel do? Goes to Ahab and goes, you're the king. We're going to get that field. No problem. We'll just uh, go and kill Naboth. And that's easy as that. And that's what they did. You see, you see the spirit of Jezebel just infiltrating the leaders, infiltrating the whole, the whole nation of Israel, but God had a plan for Jezebel. The Bible says uh, that upon hearing that king, the anointed king Jehu's arrival into that same city of Jezreel, the Bible says that she was up in a window, she painted her eyes. You all get in the picture? She wanted to make herself look real good on the outside. Maybe Jehu could come in and she could do a little seducing of her own. Ah, she's married to Ahab, but what does that matter, matter when her enemy is here and she's got to use what she can to seduce him and deceive him and to get him to tolerate some things? She painted her eyes from a window up above and she looked out that window and Jehu went up and he's riding in. He says, uh, who's with me for the Lord? Two people come out of the window and they go, great, if you're for the Lord, go ahead and toss her out of the window. And they tossed her out of the window. And she gets trampled by horses. And then right before that, some of you are looking at me like, this is in the Bible? Yeah, it's all in there. Right before that, the Bi uh, uh, God had prophesied that she would be eaten by dogs. And so when they go to, to, to capture her, to get her, her corpse, uh, they find out that all they can find is just a few bones because they did, she had actually been eaten by dogs in the city of Jezreel. Now you think, okay, my gosh, what is the deal here? Well, Jehu actually does a really good job of summarizing the sin of Jezebel. When he rides into that town, Jezebel's son, his name is Joram, he actually was the king of Israel, and he uh, approaches Jehu like this in 2 Kings 9.22, he says, is it peace, Jehu? Is it peace, Jehu? We good? Like, is this going to go well? We all good here, bro? And Jehu answers, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Now, I don't know where you come from, but you got to start, start coming around here and talk about my mama like that. We're going to fight. <laughs> to the church who has become tolerant of idolatry and immorality, Jesus says, you have added then spiritual adultery against him. And all of your categories against the king. And all of your categories with the Lord, do you have scorned lover as a part of the thing that you have in your mind with our God? Because he says, if you commit adultery with her, adultery, if you go after these false gods, if you go after and you serve these false gods, turning into sexual morality, maybe you just go sexual morality without the idolatry or known idolatry. It's adultery against our king. 
It's worldliness. It's friendship with the world. Jerry Bridges, in his, wor- in his uh, uh, book called Respectable Sin, says this, worldliness. This is what it says about worldliness. Tolerance. It's a preoccupation with the things of this temporal life. And second, it is accepting and going along with the values and the practices of society around us without discerning if they're biblical. I believe the key to our tendencies toward worldliness lies primarily in the two words going along. We simply go along with and accept the values and the practices of society. So your work expects you to cook the books to save their quarterly report. Do you go along? Your boss expects you to entertain a potential client at that kind of club. Will you go along? Everyone struggles with that. Will you go along? The world around us paints their eyes and calls at us from the window, seducing us to just come inside for a drink. Will we go along? You see, Elijah Elijah addressed the people of his day and I think addresses us in this day in 1 Kings 18 with a simple proposition. And he said this, as the people were wondering who to worship, do we worship Baal or do we worship the Lord? And he says, look, guys, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But you cannot do both. Gods of this world will constantly call out to us and tempt us. You're being called out to and tempted every day. Will we discern the Spirit and test the Spirit? Will we follow the Lord faithfully, not pardoning that which is coming against us? It's the question for Thyatira. It's also the question for the grove. And so uh, let's move now into the final thing, that Jesus has the words of life when he says, hold fast to me. Verses 24 through 28, this is what he says now. If we're going to, if we're going to hold fast in a culture that's coming against us with all sorts of different things, of, of idolatry and immorality, which turns us into adulterers against him with friendliness to the world, trying to become relevant, that we're just blending in. Jesus says, man, if you would just hold fast, there's a day coming that's beautiful. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, that's those that are holding fast, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not lo- learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay, uh, lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast that you, what you have until I come. To the one who conquers, there's that word again, he's con- calling all of the churches to conquer, who keep my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now this gets real revelation-y here at the end with all sorts of imagery, but here's what I think God wants us to understand is that he is holding out for us the way forward in a world full of temptation and trial, and that is to fix our mind on Jesus and hold fast to his words and his ways. Hold fast to his works, to his works on our behalf. And if we'll fix our eyes on him, here's some things that he's saying that you'll see. You'll see him 
as the Son of God. You'll see him as the supreme authority. There's no other God besides our God. No, our God is the one that reigns above all other gods. There is no point in sitting at a table of demons, that is, false gods. 1 Corinthians 10. You want to go enlighten your devotional reading this week? Go read 1 Corinthians 10 when it gives you the background of feasting at idols, at, the, at, at, a, at a table of idols. And Paul would say, it's not neutral. What you're doing is that you're feasting at the table of demons. It's very serious. It's very difficult. Because don't enter into these places without discernment. Instead, the Son of God says, come and feast at my table. Don't feast at these lesser gods' table, because I have flaming eyes. <laughs> this is the revelation Jesus coming at you right now, right? He has flaming eyes. He sees everything, and they're on fire. They light the way into the darkness, and they purify you from sin. He says, hey, I'm coming. I've got bronze feet. They're strong, they're mighty, they come with intention and in purposes, and he never wanders anywhere. He's coming with a purpose into your life, into the life of the world. And he will pardon those that will hold fast to him, but he also will judge those that just disregard his truth as something that's just, okay, maybe. Toleration. He, he has patience with unrepentance. Isn't that what he says about Jezebel? He's slow to anger in verse 21. He's abounding in steadfast love. I gave her a time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she refuses. Some of you, friends, are also refusing to repent from sexual immorality or holding on to it for just a little relief. Repent. He's giving you time. He's better. He's better. We go... We have men and women in this church that would love to come alongside you in your battle. But let's call it for what it is. It's a battle. You're in the war. You're in the fight. Either you realize it and you realize you've got to put up all sorts of walls and boundaries around the fortress of your devotion to Jesus or your walls have been broken down and you don't even know it yet. The book of Revelation is just... Let me, let me peel back the curtain of what's actually happening in the physical world because the spiritual world is just going crazy. But he's patient with unrepentance. That's what the Bible says. Second Timothy, excuse me, Second Peter 3, 9 and 10 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. He's not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, when all this happens, it will come like a thief. It's going to surprise you. It's going to be swift. It's going to be in the dark. You're going to have your alarm on, and it's still going to happen. It will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, stars, moon, sun, will burn up and be dissolved, because God's that powerful. And the earth and the works that are done, it, done on it will be exposed. Do you see? When he came before, gentle, meek, lamb. When he comes again, lion. He's coming back in a different way. And I think 
just as Adam prayed, we may forget the first time that we saw Jesus, he came to pay for our sins. Second time that we see Jesus, he'll make you pay for your sins. If we would just look back and believe the finished and final work of Jesus on our behalf so that we can have eternal life, hold, hold fast to his teachings, repent and remember and return, he is patient. He is fair and full in judgment. 20, 20, the, verse 22, like spiritual adultery leads to your sickness, which then leads to your death. 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This idea of keeping on sinning is this idea of premeditated, habitual, living in, practicing sin. It's not accidental sin. It's premeditated. And if we persist, God hands us over to ourselves, which is some of the worst kind of judgment, that you find satisfaction somewhere else. He says, no, this, that he is completely sovereign in verse 23. I know what's going on in the mind of heart of everyone, so you can either live at the mercy of those guilds, O Thyatira, or you can live at the mercy of your God, who knows all things. He knows what you're going through. And then he says this, that he is a promise keeper. I'm going to come. And I'm going to give you authority over the nations. Do you know that you're going to rule the nations with Jesus? If you are faithful to the Lord to the end, to the one who conquers, he says, I will give you authority over the nations. It's a way of identifying you with the Messiah. Back in Psalm 2, and I'll read this, it says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. It's a messianic psalm. It's about Jesus it's about the Father telling the Son, you ask of me and I'll give you the entire world as your heritage. The ends of the earth will be your possession. You shall break the nations who are all in rebellion against you with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Isn't that exactly what he says right there in verse 26? He who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. That's not the only thing that he says. You'll have the authority over the nations. He says, I will give you the morning star. Now we're in Revelation talk. The morning star was thought um, to be in ancient times when there was no electricity. It would be the brightest star that would show itself at about three or four in the morning. In the deepest, darkest part of the night, the morning star would come upon the horizon. Most people thought it was the planet Venus, they find out. It comes up over the horizon to remind you the darkness is ending. There will come a point where your trial and your tribulation and the temptation to tolerate that which is evil, to call evil, to call evil good, and to pronounce good as evil. In those moments when it's disorienting as all get out, the morning star will be yours. Jesus says in Revelation 22, he is the morning star. He is the ultimate personification of something new on the horizon. In the midst of the deepest night, he's coming. He's on the way. He's going to give you himself. And all the promises of all the scripture find their yes and amen in Jesus. And so if we'll just look upon him, put our faith in him once and forever, we will find ourselves being included in all those promises as well. So it's no wonder Revelation has this great feast before us. The 
find our satisfaction at that table. Oh, yeah, it's just a little cracker and just a little wine, but there's far more there for your soul than you'll ever find at any other table. So the invitation is for you. Will we tolerate? Will we compromise? Will we pardon evil and bring it into our hearts? Will we remain devoted to the narrow way? Now remember Jesus said it. The narrow way which leads to life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church at Thyatira. Thank you for the example that you've um, put before us. Oh God, you promise to put before us renewal, hope. I pray that we would, if we're in this space, maybe we're listening to this later and we're wondering who Alex is. Maybe we're listening to this later on podcast or YouTube, whatever it is, Lord. Maybe we're, we're in a place that we have, have tolerated a spirit of Jezebel in our home. We've tolerated a spirit of Jezebel at work or in our hearts or at the end of a long week or the long day. And we just let it in. We go, oh, it's fine. Pardoned. Wherever we have done that, and we have, Holy Spirit, would you correct us today? It would be a terrible God that just saw these things in us and didn't correct us. It would be a loving God that sees these things and says, hey, you're, you're going down the wrong path. Come back. Can I correct you here? Let me, let me just point you to the, to the pathway of life. I know it's hard. I know it's more, it's got more rocks. I know it's uphill. But it's life. So, Lord, where we have gone astray, where we have called evil good and good evil, I pray that you would just make it clear in our hearts. Would your flaming eyes of fire light the way, purify us, and trample out any unnecessary weeds that are trying to choke us out with the cares of the world. May we hold fast to you, O oh God, who promises us the gift of of yourself. This time of testing and temptation is but a season. Just beyond the horizon is hope. May we walk forward hoping in your coming. And may we respond as a people of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.